You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. It's great to see you. We're so glad that you're here. And so I guess it's going back about three years. Uh, my wife hears a noise in our kitchen, in our old house. And she says, I hear something above the cabinets. So, and she thinks that it's a rat that's gotten into our house. So I go and grab the ladder and I look, nothing's there. Uh, she's like, maybe it's in the attic. I go to the attic and I look, there's nothing there. And then we just kind of forget about it. Well, like you do, you just move on with life. So the next day, I'm coming home, and I see that there's a palm frond on our roof. And I'm like, oh, that must have been the noise that she heard. So I get up, I get the palm down, and I just don't really think much of it. That afternoon, I'm eating lunch with my family. Uh, well, Mia and I and Carrie are eating lunch. The younger two are in the pool. And, um, and my daughter Mia says, Dad, what's that? She's pointing up to above the cabinets. And my wife is at the sink. Uh, washing something, and right directly over her head, you see the hands of this giant lizard slash iguana slash dinosaur uh, thing, and it, you just see it. And, and, I, and so now I got to figure out how do I tell my wife that this thing is, so I'm like, here, so good news, you were right. There is a critter up there, and I just need you to back away slowly and quietly. So she looks up. She sees the thing. She starts screaming, and she's freaking out. And then oh, she's just like, get the Windex. Get the Windex. Bob, get the Windex. We need to spray it with Windex. And I'm like, care. Windex is not going to do anything except clean the iguana and leave it without any streaks. So I need everybody to step back and let me operate. So everybody goes, you know, Mia and Carrie go to the back of the kitchen, dining room. And uh, so I grab a broom uh, from our pantry and I jump up on the counter. And then I just kind of sweep it and like hook the thing to get it out from the cabinets. And then it hits the ground and tries to run away. But because I have the reflexes of a cheetah, I jump down and then I whack it with the broom to stun it. Then I lay, it on, I lay the broom on top of it, kind of like Thor's hammer. Like that thing can't go anywhere. And then I in our old house, we had these two side doors. So I open the side doors to the backyard and then I grab the broom, and with the skill that only comes from growing up in Boston and playing hockey every day, I grabbed the broom, and I just flung that thing straight out of my house with a wrist shot. Straight, it was amazing. It was like, wah, you know, uh, and it flies straight out. Now, it was way more impressive than the reaction you're giving me. Just <laughs> FYI. It was super impressive. And um, now, now the thing's outside. And my goal is, now, I'm not saying this is right. I'm just saying it's what I used to do. So I lived at the end of my development, and there was a, wall, a retaining wall. And everything that was on my side of the wall was my responsibility. Everything that was on the other side of the wall was the HOA's responsibility. 
So a lot of things accidentally flew over the wall to, so the HOA would deal with it. So anyway, so I, I get outside and then my two younger kids see all the commotion. They get out of the pool and, uh, and, and they're like, wow, what's going on? And I'm like, well, you left the door open. And apparently this lizard slash iguana slash dinosaur got into the house. And they're like, me? I love and I'm like, well, just, you know, and, and he's like, well, just toss it over the wall. And uh, that's what, that's, my son said that. And I was like, I am a good parent. And, uh, and then Livy comes over and she's like, wow, that lizard is huge. I'm like, yeah, it really is. And she's like, why haven't you thrown it over the wall yet? And I'm like, we're getting there, kid. And uh, so I grab a shovel. And then I fling the thing over the wall because I'm a good dad and because I just want my HOA fee to be worth it. And so now, but then we had the talk about leaving the door open. And the lizard became a cautionary tale in our house about what happens when you leave the door open because my kids are always leaving the door. And I don't know if this is what happens at your house, but this is what happens at my house. My kids, they, they go outside and they're like, what's up world? What's going on? I'm here. And it's like, yo, close the door. And then they look at me like, I didn't leave the door open. I'm like, Are you really? That's what we're doing right now? This, this illusion? And um, I'm really surprised the temperature in Miramar hasn't gone down a few degrees because we've been air conditioning the outside for years now. And um, just a couple of weeks ago, one of my kids walked outside and left the door open, and I saw it as it was happening. And so, and I, I just, uh, so I walked right behind them. And I don't want to tell you which one of my kids it was, but... They walked outside. I'm like, Xander, close the door. <laughs> and he's like, uh, well, I left it open for you. And I'm like, you didn't know I was behind you because I move with stealth like a jackal, moves through the streets. And, uh, and he's like, well, I left it open for the jackal then. And uh, don't sass me. And uh, so anyway, but this is what happens in your house like it happens in my house is the exact same thing that happens in your life like mine that it is a lot easier to get something in than it is to get out. And that's not only true in your life, it's true in your heart as well. And the story that we're going to look at in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is confronted by a couple of different uh, religious groups that are opposing him. And his response is amazing because he's showing us the importance of guarding our hearts when it, because what comes out of us is directly related to what is going into us. And see... I believe the message is going to challenge us to live with wisdom because while some things we could say, yeah, but, you know, come on, it's, it's legal or it's socially acceptable. But see, it may be legal or socially acceptable, but it may not be helpful and it may not be wise. And the sooner that we take charge as to what we allow into our hearts, the better off we're going to be. The better off we're going to be in relationships, the better off we're going to be with our future, the more joy we're going to have. So we're going to start in Matthew chapter 15. That's where we left off. We're going to start in chapter 15, verse 1. Here's what we read. It says, then the scribes and Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus saying, why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered and said to them, why do you also transgress the commandment of God? Because of your tradition. For God commanded saying, honor your father and mother and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me as a gift to God. Then he need not honor his father or mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, these people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. 
And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. If you pause there and give me your attention, we're going to talk about three things in relation to the heart. The first is this, if you're a note taker, and that is that I need to take responsibility for myself. As we get started, I I want us to take note of something because uh, one of the questions that might come up, and I hope it is that you're thinking about these things, that uh, maybe you read the Old Testament and these guys, scribes and Pharisees, don't really come up. There's, scribes are mentioned once or twice. Ezra's one, a scribe. But the Pharisees are nowhere to be found. And then you get to the New Testament, and these guys are, seem to be running the show, religiously speaking, in, in Israel. And like, who are these people? And so the scribes, if you're not aware, this is just quickly to get you up to speed if you're not aware of it. The scribes were people who made copies of the Bible, the Old Testament the Hebrew scriptures, the printing press wasn't invented until 1450. And so these guys were basically copy machines making copies of the Bible. And because they were handling the Bible all day, every day, they were experts in the law. And one of the uh, other places you'll see them that they're called the lawyers because they knew the law of God better than anybody else. The Pharisees uh, come to us from really a very different, uh, a different way. And it really starts with Alexander the Great. So, you know, around 330, Uh, or so uh, BC, Alexander sets out to conquer the known world, and he does a pretty good job. And his goal when he was conquering the known world was to spread Greek culture everywhere. So by the time he died, the whole world was speaking Greek. By the time uh, he had no heirs, so by the time his four generals were gone, not only was the whole world speaking Greek, but Greek culture had permeated every part of life uh, in every part of the world. And And Jewish life was no exception that there were parts of, uh, even there, there were many who believed that even the temple had been, uh, as they, they would say, corrupted by Greek culture and Greek philosophy. So there was a group of people that said that they wanted to separate themselves from that. And so there was a group, they were called the separated ones, that rose up. And the separated ones, that's what the word Pharisee means, is separated one. And they became very prominent in the synagogues throughout all of Israel uh, as teachers of the law. They basically had two strings on their guitar. They wanted to separate from pagan culture and have strict obedience to the law of Moses. So, what's the problem? And you might be thinking, I don't hear anything bad yet. And and that, you're probably right. You got the guys who make the copies of the Bible and the people who adamantly want us to live by it. Now, the problem begins, and I'm giving you all this by way of background so you understand the conversation that's happening. The argument begins as to the question that the Pharisees and scribes from Jerusalem asked Jesus in verse 2. He says, why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? The tradition of the elders, and this is what was, they had decided that these, when they say the elders, they're talking about uh, these, all these different rabbis that had come before them, that to not wash your hands before you eat was a sin. That was where the argument begins, but it, it, it moves to a bigger issue that Jesus Uh, brings up. Now, the tradition of the elders later became something that's called the Mishnah. Now, the Mishnah is a Jewish document, and I I say a document. It's like, I don't know, 8, 10, 12 volumes. This thing is humongous, and um, which is why no one actually owns a copy. We all just have downloaded versions of it uh, because it's just, it's huge. And so, but it's basically a commentary on how to live out the commands of the Torah. So when the Bible tells Jewish people, for example, on one of the feasts, the Feast of Tabernacles, that they're supposed to live outside in this booth that they create for seven days to to remember the people of Israel who left Egypt coming to the Promised Land, the Mishnah gives great detail and explanation on how they're supposed to do that. 
So there's all kinds of detail about how you're supposed to keep the Sabbath, prepare food, and how to wash your hands, which is the discussion here. The problem is the Mishnah wasn't completed until the second century. So there, this, all of these things right now were still being debated. So, it's, it, I mean, it's not going to be codified until about 100 years later. So everybody's still debating these issues, and here's the problem. Washing your hands before you eat is not in the Torah. Now, we might all agree that it's a good idea, but it's not in the Bible. So why did they say that it was necessary? Like, why are they transgressing? That is, you're sinning against the commands of the elders. Because there was a belief that they had that to touch food with unwashed hands made the food unclean. And there's a problem with that, because every good Jew knew uh, Leviticus chapter 11, which is the chapter that divides between the foods that are in bounds and the foods that are, that are out of bounds. And so the Pharisees were calling clean food unclean on the basis of the fact that the person hadn't washed their hands. In fact, one passage from the Mishnah in Sota 5, because I know there's people that like to fact check certain things. So in Sota 5, it says this, anyone who does not wash his hands before he eats is as unclean as if he had sex with a prostitute, as it is written, for the prostitute reduces you to a loaf of bread. So if we can just uh, really understand this, let's just say that you make yourself later a peanut butter sandwich and you didn't wash your hands. To them, you basically just cheated on your wife. And so uh, you'll never look at a jar of Jif the same way again, I'll tell you that much. And, uh, and, and so Jesus's issue is that they were making religious determinations about people based on their preferences. And that really becomes the issue. So what Jesus does, he says, okay, that's how, that's, if that's how we're going to play it, then let's play it like this. My disciples transgress the tradition of the elders, which, by the way, we're recognizing is not the Bible. But then in verse 5, uh, verse, four, uh, verse 3, he says, why do you transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? And this is where he's going to press in a little bit because they were nullifying the commands that God had clearly stated because of the traditions that they had created. So if the Bible says, honor your father and mother, it's one of the Ten Commandments, they came up with this thing, and this is the thing that Jesus says in verses 4 and 5, where he says, let's just say uh, your parents are in need, and, and they would say, man, I'd be able to help you, but everything that I have is a gift to God. That's what Jesus says. Uh, whatever would have been profit to you is a gift to God. That is a thing that they did, and the Hebrew word is the word korban. Now, korban is basically, uh, it's, it's a word that means gift, and what that meant was is that you had, maybe your parents were going through a tough time and they needed some help. And you're like, man, I don't want to mess up my life to help them. Here's what they, you'd do. You'd go home and you would say, I declare everything in my house, korban, a gift to God. And so then when your parents said, hey, you know, we could really use some help. Like, oh man, I'm so sorry to hear that. I just korban everything in my house earlier today. What a shame. You know, hope it goes well. See you later. And uh, now, but by the way, that didn't mean that anything changed. You still used all your stuff the same way, but it was just a way of saying, I've dedicated everything to God so that I don't really have to do the thing that the Bible is telling me very clearly to do. Now, I don't think any of us are in danger of corboning anything or that that's going to hold any water, but and we do this. We just do it in a different way. And here's how we do it. We'll say things like this. Well, you know, God knows my heart. And what does it mean when someone says, well, I know that God knows my heart? What it means is, I didn't do the thing I was supposed to do, but I had the best of intentions. So having good intentions should count like I did what I was supposed to do, even though I didn't do what I was supposed to do. 
And it's, it's kind of like this. You ever uh, see someone and they say, oh, you know, I meant to call you. Or I was thinking about calling you. And everybody thinks that's, a, that's not a compliment. Like when someone says, wow, I was going to call you. What that means is I was going to call you and then something better came along. So I didn't. But you should count that I thought about calling you as basically that I did call you, even though a call never took place. And, and once again, um, it, 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 doesn't, it, doesn't make, it doesn't make any sense. And, and so, because you don't get points for thinking about something and then not doing it. So last Friday, my wife and I, we hung out with some friends of ours, and they made these brownies that I love. Now you look at me and you're like, yeah, that guy probably likes brownies. And, uh, but these brownies in particular, I am just, I am like cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs over these particular brownies. Um, and they're gluten-free brownies, if you can believe it. And they are the greatest brownies of all time. And so there were some brownies left over because they had made a few different desserts and there were brownies left over. So I took it upon myself to take all of those brownies home. So the next morning, so now it's Saturday morning, and um, I decided that I was going to have a brownie for breakfast because a brownie is basically like a pancake and that's a that's a uh, breakfast food. So it's just a square pancake, kind of. Anyway, don't judge me. God knows my heart. And um, so anyway, so I decide to have a brownie for breakfast. And anyway, accidentally, I ate all of them. And uh, I'm not even sure what happened. It's really all a blur at this point. But then my kids woke up and they were like, oh, dad, we heard that there were some of those brownies left over. And I'm like, you heard right. Uh, funny story, um, I accidentally ate them all. And, and they were, could you believe they were mad at me? And I was like, how dare you? God knows my heart. My heart was to eat one. Unfortunately, my stomach got involved too. And my stomach doesn't know my heart. They've never met. And, and so, and they're like, yeah, we know your heart. And your heart says to watch your cholesterol. And, uh, which I was like, how do you know what cholesterol is? And, um, but listen, you just, you don't, get, you don't get credit. So same day, I go to Home Depot, and I tell Carrie, I'm like, hey, look, um, I'll pick up Chick-fil-A for lunch for everybody. And so I go to Chick-fil-A, because, you know, when you're buying Christian chicken, you know you're doing God's will. <laughs> and so that's why I never check my order. I just, I just, I get whatever God feels like I should have that day, even though they did forget my order, and I'm really glad I checked. And I just, I told the guy, I'm like, this is why Ronald Reagan said trust, but verify, by the way. So anyway, so my wife orders the healthy chicken, like the grilled, it's so sad. And, um, and so, and she orders it and she, she always orders the healthiest thing. And so, but I had a coupon for a free original chicken sandwich, which is like the best thing on the menu. So, which is what I ordered. But I thought, you know, I'm gonna order this, maybe Carrie will want it. So I bring it home. And, and, and I give her her sad food, and, uh, and everybody else serves. And then I say, and then I had the last one in the bag. And I'm like, hey, I had this coupon for an, an ori- a free original chicken sandwich, and I thought you might want it. I mean, you don't even understand. She's like, oh, you're kidding. That's what I wanted. But I just felt bad ordering the, because the, the, I had to order the healthy one. She hugged me. We had a moment in the kitchen. And, and it's like, and you know, people tell me, like, man, what's the secret? I want to know what the secret is to my wife's heart. And I'm like, listen, here it is. Write it down. It's carbs. That's it. But listen, God knows my heart. That is Corban. It's stuff that we make up to get out of obeying God, and it's not working. 
You don't get credit for the stuff you think about. You get credit for the stuff that you do because God blesses our actions, not our intentions. He goes on and kind of drills down on this a little bit more. Look at what he says in verse 10. It says, And when he had called the multitudes to himself, he said to him, Hear and understand, it's not, it, it, not what goes into the mouth that defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a man. Then his disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? And he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. Then Peter answered and said to him, Explain this parable to us. And Jesus said, Are you still without understanding? Do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. If you pause there and give me your attention, second thing that I want you to note is this, is that if, if the first thing about my heart is that I have need to accept responsibility for myself, that is that it's, it's my actions, not my intentions, that are, are, are what matter. The second thing is this, is that I need to evaluate my heart. I've got to realize what's going in and what's coming out. Now, there's a little bit of a problem here because uh, if, at first glance, because Jesus says, it's not what goes into your mouth that makes it unclean. Now, those who knew the law might disagree and say, well, there's an entire chapter in, in Leviticus about the foods that are inbounds or out of bounds, what makes you clean or unclean. One of the things, and, and I know that it's difficult sometimes to read the Old Testament laws, and this is like people who don't believe, they always quote some really obscure passage from the Old Testament, like, that's why I don't believe because of this obscure thing. And it's like, dude, we are 4,500 years and half a world away. Maybe there's a context that you don't recognize or realize. And that's a lot of the things that, that happen is that the commands, so many of the commands in the Old Testament are supposed to be, they're physical outward commands, but they're supposed to reveal to us something that's happening internally. So I, when I, I went to high school in Coral Springs, I graduated from uh, Terravella in, in Coral Springs, and one of the things that was such a blessing to me as a young guy before I was a Christian, uh, but most of my friends, because there's a big Jewish population in Coral Springs, most of my friends in high school uh, were Jewish. And so now they varied as far as their levels of practicing their faith, and most of them were fairly secular. But I had a few friends that took the dietary laws very seriously. And so uh, one of my friends, I, I attended a Passover Seder at his house when I was like, I don't know, 16, 17 years old. And uh, they asked me what I believed. And I was like, well, we're Catholic, but we're Catholic in the same way that Olive Garden's an Italian restaurant. Like, are you? Eh, kind of. And uh, so anyway... Uh, but my friend Brian, my friend Brian, he took the dietary laws seriously. And when it was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, we'd go to Burger King and he would take his bun off the burger uh, because they were, there's no leavened bread for this, for this seven-day feast. My other friend Craig, who lived across the street from me, I mean, he had never eaten any pork in his life. And I remember quizzing him like, oh, I don't eat pork. And I'm like, but you eat bacon, right? Like, no, I don't eat, uh, but you eat sausage, right? Like, do you have ham sometimes? Like, no. Like, what is going on here? And he's like, I'm Jewish, dude. And, and I, you know, and I, once again, I didn't totally understand that at the time. Um, but I had another friend who was Jewish, and that guy would drive 50 miles to find a good pulled pork sandwich. And, uh, and so and he was serious. And so now the question is, the question is, 
is the guy who's never eaten pork and the guy who'll drive 50 miles for pork, is, is that really the only thing that makes him right with God? And here's the thing that I think is important. Outwardly, we would look and we would say, well, the person who's trying to keep the dietary law that, that God has given the Jewish people, outwardly it would look like if he's honoring this, more than likely he is seeking to draw close to God and know him, know him better. That the food that he was eating was a revealer of where his heart was. And that's, that's really the point. And that's the point of what these dietary laws were always supposed to do. Um, but suppose that I was eating all the dietary, I was doing everything right, eating all the right foods, and I was treating people terribly. The point that Jesus is making is, is that the thing, the way that you are treating people terribly, the things that you're saying are just as bad as if you were eating things that were on the don't eat list. And that's the point that is making. Because all of these dietary laws were supposed to remind the Jewish people that they were a special people that they were a people that God had rescued and placed in the land and that they were supposed to be a light to the nations. But instead of being a light to the nations so that every other country could know, every other people could know about the true and living God, they ignored it and spent all their time nitpicking each other over technicalities. And once again, that's the point that Jesus is making is that you can eat all the right foods and your heart still not be right because what's coming out of your heart is poison. And so Jesus' point is, look, it's not that you shouldn't keep the dietary laws, um, but it's that what's coming out of your heart is the real revealer of where you are with God. And so it then begs the question, how do I make sure that what's coming out of my heart is good? And, and that becomes by changing the diet of what you allow in. And we all recognize it to be the case. So let me, um, how many of you have heard the song, Baby Shark? Oh, yeah. Okay, a lot of us. And you know the power of that song. And what happens when one person says, baby shark, do-do-do-do-do-do, baby shark, do-do-do-do-do. Now, you're already singing it. And I just want you to know, a week from now, when you're still singing it, you're welcome. And because, why? Because when something gets in, it's very difficult to get out. Now, let's, let's turn this a little bit. Think about some of the hurtful things that people have said to you. Think about some of the lies that you've told yourself that you've believed about yourself. Once it gets in, it's a lot harder to get out. And this is why we have to be vigilant about what we allow in because once it gets in, it wants to stay. And when it stays, it wants to take charge in your life. This is why the Apostle Paul, in the book of 2 Corinthians, he would say this. He would say, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedience, obedient to Christ. Now, I want you to think about that. What does it mean when we're told to take every thought captive? The word captive literally in the Greek language means this. It means to carry it into exile. 
for the, re- for the Jewish reader, that would mean they would understand Israel and Judah being carried away into captivity. Uh, the northern kingdom of Israel being carried away in 722 BC by the Assyrians, the southern kingdom of Judah being carried away into captivity by, in 586 by the Babylonians. And so there was a removal of their natural habitat because there was a new king. And here's what Paul is saying that we need to do with every thought that comes into our minds. We need to capture it and we need to send it away because there's a new king in our lives. And here's the thing that I think is important for us. Just because you have a thought doesn't make it valid. And sometimes we will build entire stories and theories on things in our lives that didn't even happen. Sometimes we will second guess um, the things that are true because we gave precedence to things that we were thinking because, well, because sometimes our thoughts, and this is the key, our thoughts are incomplete as be- at best. And, and we will act on them thinking like they're gospel. And listen, you cannot let, and this, isn't, this is part of maturity, is not letting your thoughts get out of hand without facts. Because a lot of times what we think or what we think we know is incomplete. Uh, my son, my son Xander loves celery. And it's a weird thing because he likes celery by itself. Now, I, I don't know about you, but I, I like celery just as much as the next person, but let's be honest, celery is a vehicle to whatever you're dunking it. Really, what you like is whatever you're dunking it in. Uh, because celery, I don't know that it has really any flavor. It's just, it has the consistency that you can really scoop something and make something happen. But he would eat celery by itself. And it was about three or four years ago, I mean, he was nine or ten years old, and uh, Alexander, he was just walking around eating this stalk of celery. And, uh, and, and I said, hey, I want you to try this. Take the celery and put it in this. And it was ranch dressing. And so he takes the celery, he puts it in ranch, and he's like, whoa, this is fantastic. And then he takes another scoop, and then he takes another scoop, and then we had to have a conversation about double dipping. And, uh, and he's like, dad, this is, this is so good. Did you just come up with this? And I'm like, no, in fact, this has been going on for like 5,000 years. Uh, and, 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 and the whole time, he's eating celery thinking, there's no way that celery can get better. And that's when ranch comes along and starts rocking worlds. And, and this is, listen, if you let the celery of your incomplete and uninformed thoughts control you, it's going to ruin you. And that's the reality is it'll ruin you emotionally, it'll ruin your relationships, it'll ruin your future. When a negative thought comes into your head and you're trying to like piece facts and motivations together, take it captive by employing the truths of the Bible. It's like, and so what's the filter? Here's the filter. In Philippians chapter four, Paul tells us what the filter is. He says, and now dear brothers and sisters, one final thing, fix your thoughts on what is true, what is honorable and right and pure lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. If it doesn't fit that criteria, throw it out because you're getting yourself worked up over nothing. And see, but then here's the thing that people say is, yeah, but what if the bad thing really does happen? Okay, sometimes bad things happen. Then what you're going to do is you're going to deal with it when it happens and not try to play detective and try to like make, figure out the actions and attitudes. No, deal in reality. You know why? Because reality, turns out, is difficult enough. 
as opposed to us trying to add into reality kind of all these other things that we've, we've tried to figure out. And we try to multiply our problems when we kind of deal with a lot of the fake news in our head in addition to what's happening in our actual lives. And that's the point that Jesus is getting at. Like, you got to just, you got to have this um, drawbridge in your heart that you just, this is some things that just will not pass. And if you do, listen, if you will do that, you will be, you will have so much more joy in your life. You'll have better relationships. You will have a better future because of it. Well, one last thing that, um, happens here. It's so, so important. And then we're done. It says this in verse 21. It says, then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him saying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon possessed. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she cries after us. These guys are very compassionate individuals. And, uh, <laughs> but he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, It's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from the master's table. And then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be as you desire. And your daughter, her daughter was healed from that very hour. If you pause there and give me your attention, I, I love this story. And I used to dislike this story until I really understood it. The last point in your outline, by the way, is what do I do with my heart? Is that I need to release my expectations. If you're not paying attention, it sounds like this exchange is Jesus ignoring this mom until she says something to get his attention. Once you understand the background and look a little closer, you're going to see the genius of Jesus and what he's trying to do for this woman. Now, I want you to remember something. Jesus has just had a conflict from the religious, with the religious leaders over what comes out of their mouth being the thing that defiles you. So Jesus decides that he's going to go north. So if you see here on the map, Remember, the, the scribes and Pharisees came from Jerusalem all the way to Galilee to have this conversation with Jesus. After that exchange was over, right here in the Capernaum area, they went to this area of the Phoenicians, uh, the ancient land of the Phoenicians. It's called Tyre and Sidon. So here in Tyre, uh, which is about 35 miles north of where they were in Galilee, they traveled there. Now, this is big for a few reasons. One is that Jesus is leaving Israel, which he only does a couple of times. He does it once when he uh, is just a young child and they, his parents go to Egypt when Herod is trying to kill all the kids, uh, kill him, but he ends up killing all these kids. And then um, a couple other times he leaves, goes to the other side of Galilee, which is called the Decapolis. And then he leaves Israel here and goes to Tyre. Now, um, the other thing that's important to note is that uh, one of the things that I've told you is, is that Matthew, Mark, and Luke what are called the synoptic gospels is that they a lot of times will talk, uh, uh, share a similar story and give a little bit of different detail. And so Mark gives us a little bit of different detail than Matthew does. And he tells us a little fact that's important for us. So it says this in Mark chapter seven, it says from there, he arose and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon and he entered a house. See, that's a little detail we didn't get and wanted no one to know it, but he could not be hidden for a woman whose young daughter, uh, had an unclean spirit, heard about him, and she came and fell at his feet. 
Now, this woman in another gospel is called the Syrophoenician woman. That is, she's from the area of Phoenicia. She's from this area of Tyre and Sidon. And so she comes to Jesus and she addresses him by his Jewish title. Have mercy on me, son of David. Now, this is a, this is a title that was reserved for Israel's Messiah. How does Jesus respond? He responds by not saying anything. He just, she's not Jewish. She has no idea what son of David means. She's just heard that some people would say, son of David, have mercy on me. And a blind guy said that and he got healed. And there was a guy that had another problem and he got healed. And she's like, no, I'm going to say it like this. And then he's going to do the thing that I want him to do. So she's saying this to get something out of him. And and she she addresses him as Jesus's Messiah. And that's why Jesus says, I've come for the lost sheep of Israel. Essentially saying, yeah, I'm Israel's Messiah, but I'm not yours. Then she falls down. She has to drop the pretense. She falls down and she just says, Lord, help me. Now he's got Jesus. Now Jesus is um, doing a little bit more and he's going to press her to see if she understands what she's doing or she's going through the motions to get something. And then he says this, this interesting phrase where he says, it's not good to give the bread that's for the children and give it to the puppies that are hanging around the dining room table. Remember, Jesus is in the house, maybe pointing to kids that are there and pointing to puppies that are there as well. And she says this brilliant statement. She says, yes, Lord, but even the little dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And now he knows, okay, she gets it. And he heals her. And I love that he says this at the end. And uh, I I forgot to mention this at 10 o'clock, so you're getting a little bonus. And, uh, but he says, um, oh woman, great is your faith. And that that word woman, uh, it's not like woman, great, you know, it's not like, that's not like Jesus from Alabama. Um, But that word, (laughs) that word woman is this Greek word gune. It's a term of respect. It's the term that Jesus uh, used when referring to his own mother. And so when he says, he's like, Gune, this, he's, he's respecting her greatly. And he says, great is your faith. And, um, and her, uh, let it be as you desire. He wasn't pushing her away. He was drawing her closer. Remember, she didn't come to Israel seeking him. He went to Tyre, and I would posit that he was actually seeking her. And there's something powerful here that we have to embrace, or we will live very frustrated lives when we pray and God doesn't answer the way we want him to or at the rate of speed in which we expect him to. Jesus was not moved by her fancy prayer. He was moved by her faith. Jesus wasn't moved when she thought Jesus owed her something. Instead, Jesus was moved when she realized that anything that God does for us is an act of love and grace. When I was a young Christian, um, I believed the most spiritual people in the world were people who used, like they would pray and they'd quote like the King James, the Old English, and they quoted the Bible while they were praying. I thought these were like the most spiritual people in the world. And um, I mean, they were basically like, you know, God, here's an excerpt from your writings. I just want to remind you of that, you know, and uh, I used to call these people professional prayers. And I, I was so amazed by these folks that they could, they could do that. And I remember um, going to a, a small group at church. And uh, after we became Christians, we started attending this wonderful church for years uh, before we came and started Calvary. And the guy leading the group was a professional prayer. I mean, this guy used words I had never even heard of. And I remember that he would even pray, and he would pray in like the old King James. And I don't know, he even like threw in a, like a minor British accent. Sovereign Lord of the universe, we come prostrate before thee in supplication before thy throne. 
And I was like, dang, this dude hangs out with God. And, uh, and uh, Carrie and I were dating at the time. And, and the next day, Carrie and I talked. And she's like, hey, how'd it go in your class? And I'm like, Carrie, this guy, this guy was bringing it when he was praying. And he, he, you know, he said some things. And I'm like, but we got to pray for him. And she said, why? I, said, I think he's having some medical problems because he laid his entire prostate before God. And um, she's like, is that, is that what he said? I'm like, yeah. He says, we, we've come to you prostate. And uh, I learned that day that prostate and prostrate are two different things. And uh, so <laughs> the more you know, and then the little star appears, right? Uh, <laughs> And so, but listen, this story, this story for us is proof positive that you don't have to speak the king's English or speak in a deeper voice or have a British accent for God to hear you. Instead, God is looking, wait for it, he's looking for humility. He's looking for a heart that wants to draw close to him and see him move. That's why when it says that she worshiped him, the the word that's translated worship in the Greek language is this Greek word proskuno. And the word proskuno literally means this, to turn towards and kiss. And I just, I, I, I love that picture because I, I, that's what worship really is. For those of you that are married, I mean, think about kissing your spouse, right? There's no posturing. There's no strategy. You're trying to seem like more than you are. Instead, it's this wonderful act of closeness and relationship. And that's what real worship is. This act of closeness and relationship, and when you realize that this is what God is seeking, if we think that what God is seeking is a pretentious religious show, then we won't hear him, and we won't hear from him. That's the thing that the, Jesus repeatedly indicted the Pharisees for. And here's the other thing, and this is the key to every relationship in your life. That we, you know what your marriage needs? More embracing and less expectations. You know what your kids need? More humility and less do as I say, not as I do. What your career needs is more reality and less posturing. Because we want him to answer and we need him to answer. But listen, God loves us too much to think that put us putting on a show is why he answered. And that's why when we talk about the plans of God are greater than any plan that you have for your own life, Um, it's true. But when you're calling and he's not answering, it doesn't feel like that, but yet it doesn't make it any less true. His plans really are better. But there's something about the process of praying, of waiting, of my heart changing, and then my prayer starts to change, and then we start dropping the masks that we put on and the show that we put on, and we start getting real, and it draws us to a place of us asking the right thing, and then God answers. When I was in college, one of the, uh, I, was just, I was a delivery guy at night delivering food so that I could um, go to school during the day and get my theology degree. And there were a few times that, and I've always had a good sense of direction, but there were a few times that I'd get to a house and I'd knock on the door and nobody would answer, and I'd knock on the door and nobody would answer. And then I, in a non-creepy way, I'd try to like wave in the window, like, hey, the guy who uh, ordered, you know, I'm bringing your food, and nothing. And then I would look and it'd be like, oh man, I'm at 180th Court, and I'm supposed to be at 180th Terrace. That's the problem. And so I'd get back in my car, drive one street over, and then I would knock on the door and the door would open. And listen, sometimes 
Sometimes we're praying and we're simply knocking on the wrong door. And sometimes we're asking the wrong way because we're putting on a show and we're thinking that the power is in the way that we ask, not in the person that we're asking. And I'm telling you that God is too good to let anything less than what we really need come into our lives. And sometimes he does a work in us while we're knocking on the wrong door. And we start dropping all of the extra stuff that we think is so important, all the stuff that we think is why God would answer if I pray it this way and hold my hands this way. No, instead, I realize I'm knocking on the wrong door. And it inspires us to then move and start knocking on the right door. And then the door opens. Because the psalmist said what he said was right, that God is good and that he does good. Let's pray together. And Lord, we want to thank you for that. We're so grateful for the work that you're doing in our lives. And we pray, God, that you would continue. We pray, Lord, we don't want to come to you trying to put on a show. Instead, God, our prayer is that we want to be a people of humility, knowing that when you answer and act, it's because you love us, because you're gracious. So God, help us. Help us to live an authentic life that follows you closer each day. And we pray it in Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.